Habakkuk chapter 3, 8 through 16 this morning. Let's pray. Our Father, I ask that this morning you would uh, putrefy the, the taste of the world to our taste buds this morning, that we could begin to taste heavenly things, and that by your word we may grow in grace and knowledge and be nourished by, by your words, our Father. And we ask that you would allow us to smell the sweet, sweet smell of, of Christ crucified um, the, and, and receive life by his word. And in the name of Jesus we ask, amen. amen. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. Habakkuk 3, 8 through 16. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers, or your indignation against the sea? When you rode on your horses and your chariot of salvation, you stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging water swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You you pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of many waters. I hear, and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon all who invade us. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You may recall from back earlier in chapter 1 of uh, Habakkuk, Habakkuk's description of the gluttonous uh, greed of the Babylonians. He said in, in 1, 14 through 17, You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook, that is Babylon. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet. So he rejoices and is glad. Therefore he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? It's inevitable for any great military empire that that they become greedy eventually. And once they start to acquire wealth and power, they they thirst for more. And as they extend their reach further and further, they're able to attain more and more for themselves. And they'll just descend on any nation kind of arbitrarily just, just for their own gain. Now, God, of course, is the greatest military power. 
And this message is uh, really part two uh, of the message of the March of God. Habakkuk's describing this March of God in a military sense. And last week, Habakkuk painted this picture of the approach of God as he approaches the battlefield. Um, And he is the God who has shown his power to his people, as we saw at Mount Sinai last week, and who has shown his power to the nations, causing them to be afraid as he gets closer and closer. He is the object of our faith because he marches in strength and power. But the question is, as the military might, is he like the Babylonians? That is, is God to be feared because he aimlessly and arbitrarily descends on peoples and nations just to flex his muscles, to to show off? Or is there a purpose to his actions? And this is really, I think, the question uh, posed in verse 8. And it's a, a rhetorical question. But he asks, Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses, on your chariot of salvation? This is a consideration of, of the Exodus events, uh, of the wilderness events, of the conquest. And in these events, he rolled back the sea, he rolled back the Jordan River. And was he doing these things merely to make a splash, merely to show off? Or was he, did he have a purpose? Rivers and seas are also um, representative of nation, national boundary lines, of borders. And so is God just kind of moving the borders around, moving Israel in and, and removing Canaan just for the sake of his own good pleasure, just for fun, or does he have a specific purpose? The answer, of course, is seen in the end of the verse. He says, when you rode on your horses in your chariot of salvation. This is for salvation. That is his purpose. And once again, we see this two-sided coin of wrath and mercy or justice and salvation. God's wrath is not arbitrary wrath or arbitrary anger it has a purpose and the purpose is the salvation of his people now we must consider why does Habakkuk bring this up what does all this mean to Habakkuk why does he bring this up in this hymn of prayer and corporate worship for the people of God and specifically in a time where they're experiencing, um, they're on the receiving end of the military arm of the Lord. Why does he bring up this right now? And the answer, I think, is because the righteous shall live by faith. As he said in verse 2, this is a psalm, a hymn of faith. He's recalling, based on the, the past events of God, the exodus, the, the wilderness events, the conquest, he's basing his faith on these past events of God. And going forward into the future, he can have perfect faith, knowing God's promises and his actions from the past. He knows God will save his people, and he will vindicate them and destroy those who afflict them. Now, what does all of this mean to us? Um, Ultimately, I think it means that we, likewise, can have faith in the God who will conquer all of his and our enemies. He will continue to preserve his people. He will not allow us to be swiped away by the enemy. And it's just as true today as it was then that the righteous shall live by faith. This psalm of faith, this hymn of faith, is for us.
We have a, a faith in a God who marches with purpose on his enemies, and the purpose is the salvation of those he calls his own. So I want to give us two exhortations this morning from this text and kind of following this in the same vein as as the exhortations from last week from part one. So they were all centered around this idea of having faith in God. So this week we will look at have faith in God who has shown his power in nature. Have faith in God who has shown his power in nature. And secondly, have faith in God who conquers for his people. Have faith in God who conquers for his people. So first, have faith in God who governs nature for his purpose, or who has shown his power in nature. Um, This text really has caused me to think uh, a new wonderful thought that I hadn't thought before. And I think I need time to process it more, maybe a lifetime to process it more. Uh, But I've always loved... The outdoors, it gives me a sense of life, of vitality that I don't get otherwise. And one of my favorite places in this world is, is called Music Pass. It is south of Westcliff where we moved from. And you can hike up over Music Pass and on top of Music Pass you can look down this great big valley. I think it's like 10, 12 miles long, very steep with jagged peaks all the way along. And if you follow that valley down, ultimately it will spit you out on the back side of the great sand dunes. Um, And so the top of Music Pass is just one of the most stunning places in the world. But if you go down into this valley and go the other way, it kind of terminates in this big bowl surrounded by peaks. And there's two lakes, the lower and upper Sand Creek Lakes. And I've spent a lot of, or a few times, memorable times, at those lakes, fishing, camping. And it's just one of the most awe-inspiring places in the world. And one of those experiences, my dad and my brother and I went camping at Lower Sand Creek Lakes, and we spent we were going to spend two nights there. And uh, the second night, we were sitting around the campfire, and this great, big, beautiful full moon just comes up over the mountains and just illuminates the whole valley. And so about nine o'clock, we get a wild hair. We're going to make a night hike back home. And so we pack up all our stuff and we head down to the lake before we leave and. Uh, Teheras Peak is right there. It's this big triangle, and it looms over the whole valley, and it's just shining off of the lake. And so we we sang the doxology as the best that three of us could sing the doxology, and then we we headed out, and and it was this hike illuminated by the moon, almost as if it was daylight, and perfectly calm, the peaks, and it was stunning. And, and each one of us has recounted over the years that we experienced a sense of joy and awe at God's creative power in those moments. Now, here's the thought that I had this week. While I love creation and recognize God's creative power in it, there's always been, I've recognized, a bit of a disconnect for me between God's creative power and his redemptive power. 
I mean, if somebody were to ask me about the relationship, I probably could have come up with a relatively satisfying answer. But in those awe-inspiring moments where I'm taking in the breathtaking view, my mind is drawn to the creative act, uh, a worthy place to go for sure, but scarcely does my mind go to the redemptive act. And for me, this text has kind of connected those two dots in a way that I hadn't connected them before. There is in this text creation language, judgment, military language, and salvation language all converging. So verse 9, he says, You stripped the bow, the, the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. So that, that approach of God from the south has come to an end. He's approaching the battlefield and he takes the sheath off his bow. He's ready to fight. And he calls for many arrows, or some translations say he calls for the rod of chastisement or spears sworn by an oath. The point is really simply he's getting ready for battle and he's taking out his weapons. And, And Robertson points out, he says, Now it becomes plain that this warrior of righteousness is no ordinary personage. His weapons of offense include the primeval elements of the creation. It is hardly likely that any earthly enemy will be able to withstand his assaults. And verse 10 says, The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging rivers swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and the moon stood still in their place. So, again, what is the purpose of God in this military assault? Is he just splashing in the rivers? Is he just flexing his muscles? Is, is his wrath against the rivers? And, of course, the answer is, of course not. That's an absurd question, and the absurdity is intentional on Habakkuk's part. Of course God has a purpose in it, and it is the salvation of his people. God is riding on his horses, on his chariot of salvation, he says in verse 8. And in verse 13, he is going out for the salvation of his people. All of this imagery is really played out in the story that that he alludes to in verse 11, which is the story of Joshua's long day. In verse 11, the sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped at the flash of your glittering spear. So if you want to have your Bibles and want to turn to Joshua 10, we'll, we'll go there and read some of that. And in Joshua 10, we have the story of Yahweh's defeat of this coalition of five kings that has risen up against um, God's people. And, and specifically, the king of Jerusalem was terrified at all he had heard and witnessed of, of the conquest events that God had done to the other cities and regions. And this story is relevant for Habakkuk because God uses, as Robertson said, his primeval elements of creation as weapons against the enemies of God's people. So Joshua 10, 8-13. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal. And the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon and chased them by the way of the ascent of Beth Haran and struck them as far as Azekiah and Makeda, 
And as they fled before Israel, while they were going down the ascent of Beth Haran, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven upon them. As far as Ezekah, they did, they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. At that time Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, Sun, stand still at Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Ahajalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped, until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jashar? The sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. You see, he's using his primeval elements of creation as his weapons against the people of God. And the result was the utter decimation of the enemies of God and his people. And and these five kings, this coalition of five kings, as they were defeated, went and hid in caves. And Joshua said, well, don't go get them. Just roll some stones in front of the caves and put some guards out there. And the rest of you go continue to decimate that army. And once they got all done, then they pulled the, the kings out of the caves. And Joshua said, put your feet on their necks. This is utter humiliating defeat. And then they killed the kings and hung them in trees until nighttime. God uses his weapons of primeval creation and the forces of nature that he governs, and he employs them for the salvation of his people, so that he truly is mighty to save. So from now on, when I take in the beauty of the creation of the powerful forces of nature, I hope that I, and you maybe too, will, in addition to wonder and awe at the creative skill and power of God, to say that He is my God. That God who created that is my God, and He is for me. And His weapons of war are pointed at my enemies. And and what a wonderful way to find assurance of salvation, that we can look at the mountains and the stars and find assurance of salvation. Will Jesus, who created and sustains the universe by the word of his power, fail to protect one of his lambs? Will he let us be devoured by the roaring lion? Or will the God who said, let there be light, allow the light of the church to be stamped out by the world? He, he won't. He can't. He is all-powerful. Now, I wondered as I wrote this, am I spiritualizing this application? Maybe that's not a question that came to your mind, but it came to my mind. Um, and So I just wanted to point out, in, in the Exodus and in the conquest and the exile, God displayed his power primarily in the physical realm. He literally used hailstones to save his people in a physical battle. But but I don't think I am spiritualizing the application of the text. We must never forget that we do live in an era of redemptive history where our enemies are chiefly spiritual enemies. And our redemption is spiritual, but it is also physical. Our enemies are sin and death. And, and And sin and death have been vanquished in a very physical, human way. Sin has been vanquished at the cross where the human named Jesus suffered wounds in his body for our transgressions. And that last enemy is death 
and death could not hold his body. And so it will be for us. Our bodies will be raised up and we'll enjoy life in the presence of God in the new heavens and the new earth with new bodies. So we think of spiritual warfare in terms of just just the spirit world, but I want us to understand that our exodus from this world into the promised land is not only spiritual, but it's also physical. So as we go through this life and we enjoy the, the beauty and, the, and witness the awesome power of God and the terrifying catastrophe of his creation, I hope that it moves our hearts to faith in the God who governs nature for the salvation of his people. His power is displayed in nature and it is no vain flexing of his muscles. That he rides on horses on his chariot of salvation. Now Habakkuk goes on here to uh, a little bit more explicitly describe God's salvific combat, um, which leads to our second exhortation, which is, Have faith in the God who conquers for his people. Have faith in the God who conquers for his people. So God has come up from the south. He's unsheathed his bow and is flashing his, his spear and his arrows. And he says in verse 12, You march through the earth in fury. You thresh the nations in anger. This is, I think, a bit more of a direct answer to the rhetorical question, Was your wrath against rivers? Well, it wasn't against rivers. It was against nations. Specifically, those nations who opposed his people. So again, here we encounter that, that alloy between wrath and mercy. And it's really built in um, to the covenant that God made with Abraham in Genesis 15, this notion of wrath and mercy. Genesis 15:13 through 16. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and they will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. He's talking about their time in Egypt, that God promised that to Abraham in the covenant. But then he says, But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So God's purpose all along was the salvation of his people, but there was this strange time period where they were in exile again. They were away from the promised land because God had a purpose to allow the iniquity of the Amorites to get to a point where he says enough is enough. So, wrath and mercy are are swirled together in the divine plan. This is what um, Habakkuk describes here. He says he threshes the nations in anger on the one hand, but in verse 13, you went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. And these words, you went out, I think are meant to evoke the idea of kings going out to battle. It says elsewhere in scripture that the springtime is the time when kings go out to battle. It's like hunting season. <laughs> They're going to have battle season now. So God goes out. He goes out as the militaristic king leading the warfare against the enemies of his people. And the reason he goes out, in contrast to the Babylonians who go out for 
gluttonous filling of their own nets, he goes out for the salvation of his people, the salvation of his anointed. Now this word anointed is actually, it seems in the ESV to be plural, but it's singular. He goes out for the anointed. And actually a very good translation, perhaps a better one would be, you go out for salvation with your anointed one. And you can see where where I'm pointing to here. Some of the commentators point to Cyrus, who is called the anointed in one place in, in Isaiah, the Messiah of God's people. And Isaiah predicted that Cyrus would come and allow the people to go home by name 200 years before Cyrus existed. And it may be that Habakkuk is picking up on that. Or it could be um, that, that he just has a reference here to the Davidic throne, the anointed king that he's going to save his people through. Or I think it's possible that he's referring to Joshua, who played the role of anointed in the conquest. And he, um, so what, whatever the case, whatever the proper interpretation, I think all roads ultimately lead to Christ. Isaiah draws parallels between Cyrus, the, the anointed, and the suffering servant in Isaiah. And Christ is the fulfillment of the promise of the eternal Davidic king. And Jesus, of course, is the greater fulfillment of Joshua's role, and they even have the same name, <laughs> Yahweh saves. So, the ultimate fulfillment and consummation of God's warfare for his people is found in Christ. And we, we could talk about that for days. But I just want to tease out one glorious parallel that's here in this text. As God marches on in this hymn, it, it concludes with a humiliating defeat of God's enemies. It's not kind of a close match with a, a handshake and, and a congratulations at a game well played. This is God crushing his enemy and completely devoting him and to destruction and embarrassing him verse 13 b you crushed the head of the house of the wicked laying him bare from thigh to neck you pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret Habakkuk seems to focus, shift the focus of the images from the past to now his present circumstances. And the evil Babylonians who descend upon Judah as if they were their own force of nature, a whirlwind, um, and they scoff at their victims and mock, God will expose them. It says he will lie them bare from thigh to neck. And he says he will execute their warriors with their own arrows. His aim is to put them to shame. That's kind of a disturbing image, but it's the one that's in my head. That of God or of of the Babylonians and their mightiest warriors lined up on their knees in a position of of being humbled, and God has them take their own arrows out of their own quivers and execute each one of them with their very own arrows. How, How humiliating, especially for a mighty warrior to be executed with his own arrow. This is what God does. Utter humiliation and complete defeat of his enemies. This is exactly the kind of humiliating defeat that Jesus imposes on his enemies. In Colossians 2, 
And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And it's funny here, he uses the enemy's own favorite weapon, death, to accomplish his purpose, to defeat his enemy. Acts 2.23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. The, the most heinous act ever undertaken by the hands of sinful men was to fulfill the most wondrous act ever planned by God. That is, to put an end to sin and death and destroy the works of the devil. So we must remember when, as it was for Habakkuk, that evil seems to prevail and, and that good seems impossible, that God goes out for the salvation of his people, for the salvation with his anointed one. Have faith in the God who conquers for his people. I want to conclude with this question. What does this faith look like? Is, is faith, as one man asked, the cultivation of an optimistic outlook on life with a kind of spirituality attached to it? A, a holy hoping for the best? Is that what faith is? The Bible says, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So in a confession of the assurance of things he has not yet seen, Habakkuk brings to bear the events of the past on his present circumstances. He remembers that Yahweh is his God. In verse 15, you trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. Here he remembers the mighty deliverance of God's people at the Red Sea. We, like Habakkuk, have the opportunity to look back and to call to mind the mighty acts of God in our deliverance. He has defeated sin and death once for all at the cross and at the tomb. And though I do not now see him, I love him as he sits at God's right hand, ever interceding for me and to return one day to deliver the final blow to those who oppose him and to raise me to everlasting life. This is sure because of the, the actions that Jesus undertook at the cross. And that has a lasting impact on the way we live our life. So just listen to this counterintuitive expression of faith off the lips of Habakkuk in verse 16. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. It's not a normal expression of faith. I, I would think he would say, well, I know God is on my side, so I'm not afraid at all. But he says, I hear my body trembles. Rottenness enters into my bones. This is an expression of the fullness of understanding of the God whom Habakkuk worships. Because he knows both the wrath of God and the mercy of God. 
and the sound of God's war horses trampling the surging seas causes him to tremble because he knows at the moment the arrows of the, of the Lord are presently pointed at Judah. And that prospect strikes horror into his very heart. But he doesn't rebel in anger or flee in terror or, or pursue other comforts. He looks God in the eye seeking the only source of salvation he could seek. And he says, Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come on those who invade us. God will deliver his people. Yahweh rides on his horses, on his chariots of salvation, and the righteous shall live by faith in him. Amen.